Good morning. Good morning. Well, my name is Tanner Standerwick. I'm a college, uh, the college director here at Flint Hills Bible Church. I'm a pastoral intern. Yeah, <laughs> college group. Yeah, that's right. Zenos, rocking it. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 2 through 9 this morning. So if you will, turn there with me and... We'll open up with a word of prayer. Father, we do just thank you for your wise word. We thank you that it shows us a better way. Thank you that it shows us The true source, the true foundation upon which we can base our relationship with you, that we can even relate to you at all as sinners. So Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning. And that none of us in here would go away the same as when we walked in. And that the change in our minds that by your grace leads to the change in our hearts would be all to your praise and glory. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, there was a cancer doctor who served in his profession faithfully for more than 40 years. He was a deacon at the First Baptist Church in his hometown where he served for the better part of 25 of those years. He was a father of three, a grandfather of 12, and as many said at his funeral, a friend to all. He passed away in his sleep at the age of 77 from unknown causes. And the most common thing that was said of him at his funeral was he was a good man. He loved his family, he loved his church, he loved his community. If anyone was going to heaven after they died, it was him. His pastor even said so. At the funeral. Now, when he got to heaven's gate, God met him. Now, this is where you know the story's made up. God meets him at the gate and he asks him that question that he had shared to so many people when he was evangelizing. If you were to die today and God were to ask you, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And when God asks him this question, he gives him kind of a perplexed look. He says, did you not see my funeral? Did you not hear all of the great things that were said about me? I mean, I did this, 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 that, and the other thing. Of course you should let me in. Now, based on his answer... Should God let him in? 
In other words, for God, how good is good enough? That question really gets at the heart of our salvation. On what basis does God decide to pronounce guilty sinners not guilty? And I think most of us in this room could probably articulate that it has absolutely nothing to do with us. The question that that man asked God was ultimately, or or his answer that he gave, excuse me, was, was the wrong answer. It has nothing to do with us. It has all to do with the grace of God. The only way that any of us are going to be able to stand before God and he will tell us, not guilty, give us a not guilty verdict, is only by his grace. And there's really two parts to this. In order for for guilty, sinful people to receive a not guilty verdict, number one, our sins, all of them have to be forgiven. Our slate needs to be wiped clean. But there's a second part to that, and this is what we are learning this morning. All of that sin has to be replaced with perfect, pure righteousness. Not only do we need to have a clean slate, but we need to have a full slate of righteousness. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to be 100% perfectly, purely righteous to be saved. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with that. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, none is righteous. And as if we didn't get it the first time, Paul says, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. In and of ourselves, we are unrighteous people. So here's our problem. If you have to be righteous to be saved, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, but nobody on their own is righteous, then on our own, nobody gets saved. Unless, unless our righteousness comes from someone else. This is what Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. And we'll see this morning that Christ's righteousness is enough to provide the foundation for our salvation. And we're going to see that so, by God's grace, we will base our relationship, even as believers today, on what Christ has done instead of on our performance And we can experience the joy and peace of having a right relationship with God. So Philippians, Paul is writing from a prison cell in Rome. And he writes to these group of professing believers in the Roman city of Philippi. And he writes to tell them a couple of things. Two of the most uh, uh, prominent, two of the primary themes in the book of Philippians are unity and joy. And he begins chapter 3, verse 1, this way. He says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. And he spends the rest of chapter 3, even a little bit into chapter 4, laying out this argument for Christian joy. That true Christian joy comes from rejoicing in the Lord by standing firm 
and hope of our future resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. But there's an issue. There are false teachers on the lurk. This is how he begins in verse 2 of chapter 3. These men were most likely um, Jewish professing Christians, commonly known as Judaizers. And what they would basically do is they would go to a congregation, a group of Gentile believers, and say, hey, guys, so yes, Jesus is great. Yes, faith is great. Yes, grace is great. But you need something more. You need circumcision. You need to keep the feasts. You need to keep the laws and and all the laws that had been added on top of the laws in order to really be right with God. And as Paul addresses these false teachers, he answers the question, who should we base our confidence in for our relationship with God, ourselves or someone else? And he does this by giving his own personal testimony of losing what's not enough and gaining what's always enough. So look with me as we begin in chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he goes right after them, and he gives this repeated warning. Look out, look out, look out. And he calls them by some less than endearing names. First, he calls them dogs. Now, dogs in that day were not cute little fluffy animals that you put sweaters on and post on social media. Dogs were scavengers. Dogs were gross. Dogs were nasty. You wanted nothing to do with dogs. One writer called them the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures and despised because they would eat anything, including dead animals, human corpses, and their own vomit. These animals were considered unclean by the Jews of of that day. And you know who the Jews commonly called dogs? Gentiles. Gentiles. So when Paul comes at these Jewish false teachers who feel real smug in their own Jewish self-righteousness, and he calls them dogs, he is giving them a slap in their spiritual face. This would have been extremely insulting to them. Secondly, he calls them workers of evil. Now, this is in stark contrast to what they thought was the epitome, the peak of righteousness, being a Jew, being circumcised, following the feasts. We're following God in righteousness. And he says, no, you are actually workers of evil. Extremely insulting. And thirdly, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh, so as, as circumcision was this act of cutting away flesh to symbolize setting somebody apart to be a part of the people of God, he takes that idea of cutting flesh, this thing, this, this sign of being in the covenant of God, this, this holy sign, and he calls it mutilation, extremely insulting. Why? Why the strong words, Paul? 
Because these men were saying, Jesus isn't enough for you to be saved. You need to do something plus Jesus. They're denying the very heart of the gospel. So he continues in verse 3. And and he gives this warning in verse 2, and next he gives the reason why they should heed this warning. He says in chapter 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Judaism, actually, as we read in Colossians chapter 2, was called the circumcision. So as these false teachers are inviting these Gentile believers, come, be a part of the circumcision. We are the people of God. Paul is saying, no. Everything that they're offering you to gain you access to God, to get you this relationship with God, to reconcile you to him, you already have. You are the circumcision. Notice how else he describes them, who worship by the Spirit of God. These believers are already indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They worship him in the power of the Spirit. And they glory in Christ Jesus. They glory and boast in Christ, in contrast to the next phrase, and put no confidence in the flesh. They put no confidence in the flesh. Now, the confidence that he's talking about is, is placing your confidence in your own works, your own obedience, your own goodness to get you to God, to make you right with God. It is trusting in your own good works. Now, today, some may put their trust in being a good person. Some may put their trust in consistently reading their Bible and praying. Some may put their trust in how often they share the gospel with other people. Some may put their trust in how good of a parent or a sibling or a child that they are. But the foundation of a true believer's relationship with God is not themselves, but Christ. Those who are truly members of God's family don't boast in themselves, but they boast in Christ. They don't put their confidence in themselves, but they put their confidence in Christ. Now, he's setting us up for a contrast here. We need to keep this in mind. You've got Christ and the flesh. You've got boasting in Christ versus boasting in the flesh. And he's going to come back to this in a few verses. But before he does that, he gives us his spiritual resume. He gives us a personal testimony to underscore this reality. True believers are those who put no confidence in the flesh. He begins in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. In fact, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now he's not saying here, I put my confidence in the flesh. But he's saying, if anybody had a right to do that, I do. I'd be like somebody who's, a, who's an excellent cook, who wins this big cooking competition. And yet when they're asked, how did you do it? They give no credit to themselves, even though they could. Paul's saying here, if I wanted to, I could. In verses 5 and 6, he begins with seven 
reasons why he could put his confidence in the flesh. First, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And he goes right for the jugular here. Circumcision was the big point of emphasis. I was circumcised on the eighth day. So you know what he's telling these Philippian believers? These Gentile Philippian believers? You think getting circumcised as an adult sounds impressive? I was circumcised on the eighth day. My circumcision was legit. Yours is a second-rate circumcision in comparison to mine. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Secondly, he says, I am of the people of Israel. I am of the Israelite race, that people who had been specially chosen and tasked by God to be his holy people and his ambassadors in the world. Does becoming a Jew sound impressive, Paul says? I'm one by birth. If you, if you convert, then you're just a proselyte Jew. I'm the real deal. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Thirdly, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. So, so does becoming a Jew sound impressive, Philippian believers? I have a tribal heritage. You won't have a tribal heritage. And my tribal heritage is not insignificant. King Saul, the first king of Israel, was from the tribe of Benjamin. The city of Jerusalem lay in Benjamite territory. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 12, Benjamin is called the beloved of the Lord. Benjamin was the only other tribe to join the tribe of Judah when the kingdom split out of faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. This was not an insignificant tribe. Paul says, that's where I am from. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Fourth, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Does becoming a Jew sound impressive, Philippian believers? I'm the Hebrewist Hebrew, whoever Hebrewed. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And I was faithful to my religion I never compromised my beliefs. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Fifth, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. He says, does does following the law sound impressive, Philippians? No one followed the law better than me. The Pharisees were literally professional law keepers. That was their living. That's what they did. And in fact, they were so diligent about keeping the law that they would create laws to kind of create a barrier to make sure you didn't break the Mosaic law. They're called fence laws. So you create laws outside of the Mosaic law to keep yourself as far away as you could from even breaking that. 
There was nobody, according to the law and the standards of the day, who was more righteous than the Pharisees, who were better law keepers than the Pharisees. Paul says, that was me. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Sixth, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So does following Judaism and being committed to Judaism sound impressive? I did it better than anybody. There was this little group that arose who rallied around this, from what I thought, faux Messiah. And everybody thought he was so great until the Romans hung him on a cross outside of Jerusalem and had him killed. And there was this, what I thought at the time, this rumor going around that he'd actually raised from the, been raised from the dead. And so, out of my zeal for Judaism, as this little sect called The Way was drawing people away from obedience to the law, I decided to take matters into my own hands, and others supported me. And I took these Christians, and I beat them, and I had them thrown in prison, and I stood back and watched as one of their leaders, Stephen, was stoned to death, and I held the cloaks of those who stoned him all out of zeal for my religion. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. And seventh, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. Now, Paul's not saying here that I've never sinned. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he calls himself the chief of sinners. So he's not claiming perfection here. But he's claiming that if anybody were to be judged, the character and content of their lives was to be judged by the standard of the law, you could not find anything in there that I was not faithfully adhering to, that I was not faithfully following. I was blameless. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Now he lists all this for a reason. Because what he's about to tell us is that as great as all of that was, most of that, maybe the persecuting the church, not not so much. But in his eyes as a Jew and in the eyes of other Jews, how, how great all of that sounded was completely for naught. was completely for naught. He, he's trying to get us under, to understand that if these Jewish false teachers are right, then I should be the first one through heaven's gate. I should be at the top of the pecking order in heaven. But, but, see, we'll all put our trust in something. We'll all put our trust in something. 
for our relationship with God. The question is, how do we know what we're putting our trust in? And I think one way to know, are we putting our trust in ourselves or in somebody else, is what happens when that confidence is shaken. What happens when we lose our assurance? Where do we turn? What do you fall back on? You're feeling nervous that maybe you're not really saved? So you start looking, thinking back in your mind. Okay, I've done my quiet time every day for the last month. I shared the gospel with my coworkers. I served faithfully in church. My prayer life was good. And that's all better than what I was doing last month. And certainly better than a lot of the other people that I see. So I must be good. God must be okay with me. I must be saved. What is that? Confidence in the flesh. Now, our works are a fruit of faith. They're a testimony that you're truly saved, but they can never provide the foundation. If they did, every time we didn't perform, which is daily, hourly, minutely, we would lose our salvation. And our confidence and our assurance would go right down with it. Paul is saying here, I don't put my confidence in my flesh for my relationship with God. Even though, if I wanted to, if that was good enough for God, I could do it. Notice how he describes the way that he thinks about his Judaism. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Anything that I thought actually gained me something with God actually made things worse. All this stuff that I thought went in the prophet column, my spiritual prophet column in my relationship with God, actually went in the loss column. It actually put me in the red, spiritually. They didn't just keep me at zero. They didn't just make me neutral. They pushed me negative. Putting our confidence in the flesh actually pushes us further from God. And he's not saying here that being obedient, doing good works, trying to follow the Lord faithfully actually pushes you farther from him. No. He says putting your trust in those things pushes you farther from him because it distracts you from the true source of confidence, which is Christ. And he counts all of that, that at one point he thought was gain, as complete loss for the sake of Christ. He was willing to lose what's not enough for what's always enough. The good works that he thought could get him somewhere, which in reality only got him further away from God, he gave up. He gave up. 
to gain what's always enough. Look at verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I I, I didn't only count these things that I just listed in verses five and six as loss, but I count everything as loss. And And think about it. Paul, even as a believer, if he wanted to put his confidence in the flesh, he had more reason than any of the other Christians to do so. All of his missionary journeys... The suffering that he had endured for Christ. He's currently sitting in prison, right? All of the conversions, all the people who could, who could trace their spiritual heritage back to Paul himself. All of the churches that he had founded. How he had spilled sweat, blood, and tears for the cause of Christ. If Paul, even as a believer, wanted to put his confidence in his flesh, there is nobody who would have had more of a right to do so than he did. But he says, no, I count all things as loss. Again, not that those things are bad, but they don't make us right with God. He pushes on in verse 8. He intensifies it. For his sake, being Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Notice how he thinks here about his own goodness and righteousness. Rubbish. Rubbish. Now, this could mean a couple of different things. This, this could have either meant the, the trash, the garbage that would be thrown to the streets, to the dogs, for them to eat, for them to dig through. Or it could just mean dung. Either way, it's not exactly what you want sitting on your Thanksgiving table. These are not pleasant things. All those things for Paul that looked so good on the outside. They looked so shiny. They looked so pretty. They looked so righteous. He says, for me, just to be thrown to the dogs. To me, dung. This is reflected in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Where Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the best things that you can do in terms of your standing before God are completely worthless and, in fact, make things worse. It's like being at Thanksgiving and having the, the turkey. It's a perfect color, perfect smell. But as soon as you cut into it, you see that it's full of maggots. For Paul, this was his own righteousness before God. This is what trusting in himself was like. Rubbish. Rubbish. There was something better. 
there was something better. So far, Paul has only given us bad news. He's only given us bad news, right? If he stops there, we're in big trouble. But he continues, thankfully, in verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. Now, what's up with all this talk about Christ? What does Christ have to do with any of this? He explains in verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, if you want to be right with God, the way is not to just try really, 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 really hard to be good, to obey. If you're trying to earn your own righteousness through your works, you'll never be able to do it. You will be a sinner until you die or until the Lord returns. And righteousness here is not just good enough. It's perfect. Righteousness here does not mean that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. It means you have no bad deeds. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is perfect perfection. It's purity. It's spotlessness. So if the key is not scratching and clawing to try really, really hard to earn our way to God, what is the key? The key is in verse 9, being found in him, in Christ. Paul teaches this elsewhere. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, where he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 Paul says again, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's what happens. When somebody is in him, when somebody is in Christ, they actually receive his righteousness. Now what this doesn't mean is that we stop sinning. We now can only do good and righteous things. But it's that when we stand before God in the future and today, the way that God looks at you and at me is not as Tanner the sinner or Flint Hills Bible Church, the sinner's. That's not how he judges us anymore. But he looks at me and he looks at you as clothed, as covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ because we are in him. His righteousness is counted to us. It's uh, credited to us. It's imputed to us, not infused into us. God looks at us now as perfectly righteous.
And that's all that I need to stand before God and hear a not guilty verdict. Nothing in myself. That only pushes me further away. Nothing at all. We'll either trust in ourselves or we'll trust in someone else. And Christ is that someone else. He is, was, and always will be perfectly righteous. And if we're united to him, if we are in him, we can be too. How does this happen? How does somebody go, go from being outside of Christ to being in Christ? How does somebody go from being judged by God as a sinner to being judged by God as perfectly righteous in Christ? Well, Paul gives us the answer to that as we continue in verse 9. He says, and, we're, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So again, it has nothing to do with us, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on Faith. So how does this happen? It's very simple. Faith. Faith. What is faith? Faith means that I recognize and understand that I can't do it. That I am a sinner. I have nothing to bring to the table before God. I have nothing to bring to make him love me. And then it looks at Christ. And it understands what Christ has done and believes fully that that's enough for me. That's what faith is. It's accepting what Jesus has done as fully sufficient, totally enough. That's faith. And when that happens... When that happens, God will give you, he will credit to you the righteousness of Christ. It's from God, as he says in verse 9. This was taught in the Old Testament, so these Judaizers were wrong. Theirs was a twisting and an aberration of Old Testament theology. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we hear this about Abraham. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. He had faith, and he, being the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. God no longer judges us as sinners. Now, we can can, um, grieve the Holy Spirit. We can invite the discipline of God. It doesn't mean that God turns a blind eye to our sin. But how he judges us in terms of our relationship to him is as perfectly righteous in Christ. Total righteousness. So what? So what? If you're a believer, We need to recognize, we need to remember that our salvation never had anything to do with us and it still has nothing to do with us. We can't lose it because we didn't gain it. 
But as believers, we can easily fall into one of two categories. We could either fall into the category of being a Pharisee, like these men were, or guilt-ridden. Now, the Pharisee thinks, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm rocking it in my relationship with God. I'm reading my Bible consistently. I'm going to church every Sunday. I'm, again, sharing the gospel. I'm doing all of these wonderful things for the Lord. So God must be okay with me, especially in comparison to my cousin who's in drug rehab or my coworker who's going through a divorce. God must love me. Why wouldn't he? Now, what's the problem here? The problem here is the Pharisee is basing his relationship with God on his performance. So what is he not basing it on? Grace. Grace. This person has a performance-based relationship with God. And if that is you, you are in big spiritual danger. Because one of two things could happen. When you mess up, when you sin, you could either do one of a couple of things, or all of them. You could begin to justify it. You could begin to justify it. And when you justify it, you could easily become self-deceived into thinking that you are a Christian. You're okay with God when you're actually not. If you turn a blind eye to sin. Or, when you mess up, when you sin, it could crush you. It could crush you. If I'm comfortable and smug in my own righteousness, and then I find out I'm not as good as I thought I was, maybe God's not happy with me now. That would crush me. In either case, the spiritual danger is great, and you need this reminder. Christ is enough for you. So put down the self-righteousness. Put down the pride. And in humility, look to Christ, who, who, who is righteous for you and trusts him. Some of you may be the guilt-ridden. In, compar- in comparison with everybody else, you feel terrible. You feel like you can't do anything right. You've got sins in your past that, yeah, you know Christ can forgive you, but you just can't get over them. You constantly struggle with doubts, doubts about your own salvation, doubts about the truth of the Bible, doubts maybe about the existence of God. You have questions that don't seem to stop. You can't seem to have the peace and the assurance that your Christian family and friends have. You know God has a high expectation for you as a Christian, but you feel like you can never live up to those expectations. You know you should be trying to strive for holiness, but somehow all you can seem to do is mess up and sin. And if that is you, my goal is not to comfort you and reassure you that you're a Christian, just don't worry about it. But to point you to a better way. Because I know a man 
who is righteous in every way that you feel like you can't be? Who is perfect? And I know a man who took the entire weight of the sin and guilt that you can never seem to shake on his shoulders, and he died so that you wouldn't have to bear that weight anymore. And his perfect righteousness, if you trust him, can be credited to you so that God will no longer look at you in wrath, but in grace. And in him, you can be right before God. See, the only way, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, the only way for any of us who are sinners to be made right with God is to look to Jesus, who was perfectly righteous in every way that we couldn't be, and who bore the weight of our sin so we wouldn't have to. And when that happens, when we trust him, we can be in him and perfectly righteous in him. And we can receive a not guilty verdict in the end and now. Christ is the only way. His righteousness is enough to make you right before God. And in him, enough is enough. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we are on our own. We are helpless sinners, completely undeserving of your grace. And Lord, we thank you for this reminder from the Apostle Paul that our standing with you has absolutely nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. Lord, I ask you to help us to trust in him. And that as we trust more and more every day, and as we look to the man on the cross more and more every day, that you would give us the peace, the joy of being in Christ, knowing that enough is enough. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.